Well, the scripture reading today is Ephesians 2, 19-22. Ephesians 2, 19-22. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you are also being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Good morning. Good to see everyone today. It's wonderful to be together and we're sure glad to see Jason today. I'll tell you, we missed you last Sunday. I know you probably missed being here, but uh, we've been praying for Jason. We're really glad that he was uh, back home by the end of last Sunday and that you're here today. And uh, just welcome all the rest of you who are here. Glad to have some visitors uh, with us today, some that I haven't met yet, and we're really glad to have our family here. And those of our number who are away on vacation are going to be so sad because they don't get to see my grandkids. But uh, I guess I'll just have to wait and come back. Today we're talking about the end. The perfect ending to our story in the book of Exodus. In the summer of 1971, I went on a trip with a friend of mine, and most of you have heard more about this trip over the last 25 years than you care to, but uh, we went um, 14,000 miles, 36 states, eight weeks, on a budget of a little under $500 each. Uh, Gas was 22 cents a gallon. I was 19 years old. And this was a trip that really impacted my life in a lot of ways. Every Saturday night, we'd call home, collect, talk to mom and dad. That was the only way they would know from week to week that we were still around. And uh, it was just an amazing experience traveling across the country. And I remember coming home. It was in August of 71. And I was just so excited to be home. And, I mean, it was, it was a great trip. But after eight weeks, you're ready to get out of the little truck and, you know, get back to your house and... Um, We actually got home a day early. My mom and dad were expecting us on Saturday. We got home on a Friday night, and I wanted to surprise them, and so I just had Tom drop me off. We said, hey, we'll unpack the truck tomorrow, and I walked up to the door with such anticipation because I was coming home, and I was going to knock on that door, and I knew just what was going to happen. Mom would open it. There would be probably some tears in her eyes. Dad would give me a big hug. They'd have be filled with questions about the great adventure we'd been on. And then Mom would probably cook me anything that I wanted, you know, because it had been a while. And I knocked on the door, had such building anticipation for that moment, waiting to hear that doorknob turn and for, for this journey to come to that perfect ending. And nobody answered the door. And I knocked again and... There was no answer, and I thought, well, what's going on here? So I went to, I, I knew how to break into my own house, of course, so I, I broke into the house with, I mean, there was a way to get in a window, and I got in, and nobody's there. Uh, I wait around about 11 o'clock. My mom and dad get home, and I said, where have you been? And they said, well, you said you were coming home tomorrow. We've been at a party from people at church all night. I said, you don't, you don't go out till 11 o'clock. Anyway, it was not the perfect ending. It was not the perfect ending I'd imagined to my trip. It was not the way I wanted it to come to an ending. Some stories have the perfect ending. George Bailey, It's a Wonderful Life. This this story has the perfect ending. Then some other stories come eh, 
Kind of mixed reviews on how this one ends. I haven't seen it. I don't know. But a little mixed reviews. But I'm telling you, the story of Exodus that we've been reading through all year comes with a perfect ending. In Exodus chapter 30, or chapter 40, verse 34, we read, Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud settled on it, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Throughout all their journeys, whenever the cloud was taken up from over the tabernacle, the people of Israel would set out. But if the cloud was not taken up, then they did not set out until the day that it was taken up. For the cloud of the Lord was on the tabernacle by day, and fire was in it by night, in the sight of all of the house of Israel throughout all their journeys. Now, even if you're just coming in at the end of the story today and haven't been with us all year, you've got to admit that's a pretty good ending to a story. But those of us who have been here throughout the duration of our study of the book of Exodus can really appreciate the amazing ending of this book. And it's the perfect ending, first of all, because it completely fulfills the promise and the expectation that have been raised for us in the opening chapters of this book. And it brings the story of the Exodus of Israel to a fulfilling and to a glorious close. This is an epic story. The story of Exodus is an epic story. It begins... Back Exodus chapter 1, verse 1, These are the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt with Jacob, each with his household. When we started this story, we couldn't just start in Exodus. We had to point back to Jacob, the grandson of Abraham, taking us all the way back to the promise to Abraham in Genesis 12 because the people that we read about in the opening of Exodus are tied back to that covenant promise that God made with Abraham. And the family moves to Egypt because of famine. We know that story at the end of the book of Genesis. And then generations pass. And then the 75 descendants of Abraham grow into a population of something like at least 2 million people. But during the course of that growth, they become a threat to the Egyptian empire. They've been enslaved. And when the book of Exodus opens, they've been slaves for generations. They have no land. They have no national identity. They have nothing. They have no hope. And frankly, nobody cares about them and nobody sees them and nobody hears them. They are an insignificant group of people. But God hears them and God sees them and God cares about them and God hears their cry and He remembers His promises to them. And he begins to work in some of the most unusual ways to prepare a man to be the leader of his people and bring them out of that that slavery in Egypt. He, he, He calls a leader, actually almost at the burning bush, coerces Moses to go back to Egypt to bring God's people out of Egypt with the simple words to Pharaoh the king, let my people go. But when God sent Moses back, Moses had something to say on behalf of God to the people. Say therefore to the people of Israel, I am the Lord. 
I am Yahweh, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians, and I will deliver you from, sl- from slavery to them, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. I will take you to be my people, and I will be your God, and you shall know that I am the Lord your God who has brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I will bring you into the land that I swore to Abraham, to give to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. I will give it to you for a possession. I am the Lord. Those words have been up there all year, since the first Sunday of the year. The Exodus promise. God comes to His people and He says, This is what I'm going to do for you. And we know, of course that what God says, He will do. When Moses goes back and Pharaoh will not listen to, to his words and has no regard for God, God brings a series of plagues on the land of Egypt to judge Pharaoh and the gods of Egypt. Ten plagues that come upon them, coming, culminating with the death of the firstborn throughout the entire land. But the firstborn of Israel finds protection because the blood of the Passover lamb has been placed on the doorpost of the house. But there's a great cry throughout the land of Egypt that night because of the death of the firstborn. And the Egyptians are glad to finally be rid of Israel after the series of plagues. And off they go, God leading them with this pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. And they take off on their journey, but we know it's not without its dangers because Pharaoh's heart will be hardened. He'll come after them. They'll be pressed up against the Red Sea with their backs to the sea and the army of Pharaoh coming down upon them. The cloud of, 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 of God will move between his people and Pharaoh and his armies to stop that progression of that army for a moment at least. While the people cry out and say, why have you brought us out here just to die? And Moses says, don't fear. Behold the salvation of the Lord. And at God's command, he stretches out his staff. The waters of the Red Sea part. Israel crosses through. The cloud is removed. The Egyptians pursue. God closes the waters on them and destroys the enemies of Israel. And on the other side, they sing a song of redemption. They praise God that He has brought them out of the land of Egypt and out of the slavery that they have known. And God goes before them in the wilderness, leading them with the cloud and with the fire, providing water for them to drink. We just sang about that that water and the bread of heaven, the bread that God gave them of manna, and He brought them to His mountain. And in Exodus chapter 19, they stand there at the foot of Mount Sinai, The ground shaking under their feet, the mountain covered with smoke and fire as God approaches and draws near to them. And in an amazing act of grace, in Exodus chapter 19, God invites these people into a covenant with Him. He says in Exodus chapter 19, And verse 5. Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all the peoples, for all the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you are, sh- you are to speak to the people of Israel. So Moses came and called the elders of the people of And set before them all these words that the Lord had commanded him. And the people answered together and said, All that the Lord has spoken, 
we will do. God then lays out the terms of that covenant relationship, beginning with the Ten Commandments. And then sacrifices are made as the people voice their agreement. The sacrifices are made, the blood of that covenant sacrifice is sprinkled upon the people to ratify the covenant. Moses and Aaron and the elders of Israel go up onto the mountain and eat the fellowship offering in the presence of God to culminate this covenant. And then, from chapter 25 in the book of Exodus to its end in chapter 40, we read about the tabernacle. It starts out in chapters 25 through 31, giving all of the instructions of how the tabernacle is to be built. The tent, what it's to be made out of, the table of showbread, the Ark of the Covenant, the, the, uh, everything, the, uh, the, the candlesticks, the laver outside, the altar of, uh, of, uh, of burnt offerings and so forth, everything, the, the consecrating oil, everything, the instructions are given. Those instructions are rather rudely interrupted in chapters 32 to 34. You may remember when Israel is breaking their covenant with God by worshiping the golden calf. And it would appear that the covenant is gone. In chapter 32, it's over. The covenant has been breached. There is no covenant because Israel has broken the covenant. They have not kept their word. And Moses comes down from the mountain destroying the, the tablets of stone. The covenant is gone. But then Moses intercedes on behalf of the people. God is gracious to them and restores them and renews the covenant with them. Moses then continues for the rest of the book in chapters 35 to 40 to receive more instructions about the tabernacle and the contributions are given. And then we're told about the building of the tabernacle. It's interesting and it seems somewhat repetitive to our ears as we read through this. But the story of the tabernacle is repeated three times. God tells them what they're going to do. Then they give to it. Then they make it and actually erect the tabernacle. And you get the idea... Since 35% of the book of Exodus describes the tabernacle, that the tabernacle must be rather important. And it certainly is. Because the tabernacle will be the place, the location, where God's presence and His glory will intersect the life of the people, and God will dwell among His people. That's the place. It will be in and through this dwelling place, in the most holy place, in the tabernacle. And it will not only be the dwelling place of God where He will live in the middle of the camp, but it will also provide the means of sacrifice that will allow Israel to find the forgiveness of sins so that God can live in the camp and not kill them because they are unholy and He is holy. And so the tabernacle is a vital part of the life and the worship of Israel. And they build the tabernacle according to the plans of God. And then the question is, how will this invisible God show His people that He accepts what they've done? How will this invisible God demonstrate to His people that the covenant has been renewed and that the rift of the golden calf has been healed? And the answer to that comes here at the end of the story in verse 34. Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. This is the demonstration of God. God's glory comes 
into the tabernacle, fills it to the point that no one can come in, no one can get close, because God has taken up his residence. And God demonstrates the fact that he accepts the building of the tabernacle as they have done. That he has healed the broken covenant that has taken place as a result of the rebellion of Israel. And that he has come to do what he promised, and that is to live in the middle of his people. That's what we've been looking for from the beginning. I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I'll deliver you from slavery. I'll redeem you with an outstretched arm. I'll take you to be my people. I will be your God. And now these things are happening as God comes to dwell with His people at the tabernacle. And what about that last part? I'll bring you into the land that I swore to give to Abraham and to Isaac and to Jacob. Well, in verse 35 or 6, we read throughout all their journeys, whenever the cloud was taken up from over the tabernacle, the people of Israel would set out. In other words, the book of Exodus ends telling us that, yes, God is going to lead them to that promised land. And so this last little paragraph, this little section, is the perfect ending because it brings everything that we've been expecting and waiting for, it brings it all to a conclusion, and God does everything that He promised to do. As we've been saying all year, He can and He will. God can keep His promise. God will keep His promise. He's done everything He promised Israel at the beginning of the story. And we're told by this that this is a God you can trust. This is a God who is sovereign not only over His people, but the world. This is a God who unfolds history. This is a God you can believe in. This is a God who will be faithful to you. This is a God who will keep His covenant and His promises for you. This is a God who is easy to love. This is a God who is easy to trust and believe in because He's so gracious and He's so loving. And you can build your life on the words of this God. If He says it, you can build your life on it. You can stand on it. And that's exactly what we have done. You and I, everyone here who's in the body of Christ, we are building our lives on the words of God, believing that what He says is true, that what He has promised us that has not yet come to be, will come to be, that it is certain to us as we look back on these past events and see what God has done for Israel. The perfect ending to the story. But it's perfect for another reason. This is an ending that opens up a way for a sequel. Everybody likes sequels. Well, there's a sequel to this story. And the story ends in a way that we're ready to see what happens next. Because we find out that the end of this story is really just a beginning point for the next chapter in the history of God's people. It's interesting how these first five books of Moses are tied together. The very last verse of of chapter 40, what do we find? Well... The glory of God is there inside the tabernacle and nobody can go in. Well, what does the very next verse of Scripture say? Leviticus chapter 1 verse 1. The Lord called Moses and spoke to him from the tent of meeting. The story is just going to go right on from this very point. And God is going to tell Moses some very important things, all of which are recorded in the book of Leviticus, that have to do with the ritual and the sacrifice that will allow Israel to be clean before God and forgiven of sins before God so that God can remain in the camp. For the next 48 days, 
The book of Leviticus comes to Moses. And the, the Israelites are camped at Mount Sinai for another 48 days until Numbers chapter 10, verses 11 and 12, when the journey continues. They arrived at Mount Sinai in Exodus chapter 19, and they will leave the mountain in Numbers chapter 10, verse 11. In the second year, in the second month, on the twentieth day of the month, the cloud lifted from over the tabernacle of the testimony, which is what we've been waiting for since the end of chapter 40 of Exodus, that when it lifts, they'll go. And now it does. And the people of Israel set out by stages from the wilderness of Sinai. And the journey begins. Israel has no idea what's going to happen. This is a new adventure. This is a new story. They've been at the mountain for quite some time. And now as they leave the mountain, they have no idea what the future holds for them. They will face many tests of faith. And you and I who've read the story and know what's going to come, we realize that they're going to fail more than a few of those tests of faith that are coming on their way. But we also know that God won't fail them. That God will not forsake them. That God will continue to lead them. And that He's going to continue to be faithful to His covenant. This is a God who can and will. This is a God who will keep His promises. And as I think about this part of the story, as Israel kind of faces this unknown, once again, I'm reminded, as we've said throughout the year, how the story of Israel is our story. And we connect with it so much, not just because it's a great epic story of the Old Testament, but because we realize that so much parallels our story and theirs. In fact, when Peter writes to the church in 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 9 and 10, he speaks to us, the church, but he quotes from Exodus chapter 19. And he says to you and I, you are a chosen race. You are a royal priesthood. You are a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, that you may proclaim the praises of Him who called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. And for God's people, it's always true that some endings are only beginnings. Our current situation has made me look at this text differently than I ever have for obvious reasons. We are at the end of a year, and that's typically a time when you look back and you think, okay, a chapter is over, a new chapter begins, 2020 is next year. We kind of think that way in our culture, our year-to-year kind of thinking, a new chapter. But let's be honest, folks. It's more like a whole new volume as this new year opens for you and I. You talk about the end of a book. If my calculations are right in my head right now, in about eight days, if all goes well, escrow closes on this property, and the story comes to an end. The story comes to an end. And I don't mean to scare anybody, But we have absolutely no idea what's going to happen. 
do we? We think we do. We're making plans. We're trudging ahead. We're doing our best. But we really don't know. We don't know. You as a congregation have been so very patient. Well, at least you appear to be very patient. <laughs> and uh, it's so appreciated because um, we're at a moment, this isn't like theoretical. This is, you know, this is real. Um, we'll be moving out of a building and we haven't actually been told yet, have we, where we're going to meet that next Sunday. We're really hopeful that it does not involve 40 years in the wilderness. Just let me tell you, okay? That's not our plan. We hope we're a little bit more faithful in this journey, perhaps, than, uh, than Israel might have been. But it is uh, it's a sobering moment. It's an exciting moment in the sense that a new chapter, a new book is about to be written. But when you stand on the first page of that new book, you don't really know where the story is going to take you. But God is taking us somewhere. And that's what's important for us to realize today. God's taking us somewhere. And I don't just mean geographically. I mean, God is taking us somewhere different geographically in a location. But we need to see God taking us somewhere spiritually as a people. As He galvanizes our hearts and our purposes together. That wherever He leads us geographically in our general area, we will be determined to be this special people of His who will proclaim His excellencies to the world around us. And that we'll trust God's leading. It's certainly nothing like what these folks were facing. And yet, for us, it is a time of uncertainty. And it's so very important for us to keep our trust in the Lord and to move forward together as a people. We don't know what happens as we turn this page. But I would like to encourage you, and more than encourage you, I would like to plead with you to be praying, to be praying daily for the journey that we're on right now. Be praying for the, the shepherds of this, of this flock, that, you would grant, that God would grant wisdom, that God would grant great faith, and that God would open up doors for us because we're still knocking and looking and we fully expect God to answer those prayers. But as a church, we really need to be praying together and looking to God and trusting in Him. We don't know what's next, but we know that it's God who takes us there. Our trust isn't in ourselves. Our trust isn't in the money that we get from the sale of a property. Our trust is not in some real estate agent. Our trust is in the living God, who is our Lord. And He will lead us according to His will. If we'll continue to trust Him and look for that will and walk in it and put our trust in Him and continue this journey... As the book is about to be flipped to a new chapter or whatever metaphor you want to use, a whole new volume, to look forward in anticipation and enjoy and in great expectation of what the Lord has in store for us and where the Lord is taking us, what the Lord is about to do. But to me, it's the perfect ending to the book of Exodus because it just opens up that future. And says to Israel, now God is going to one day lift this column and you're going to go. And you have no idea where you're going to go, but you know who's leading you. And so you follow. 
And so we do, whether it's in our own lives of coming to a point in our life we don't understand our own future, or if it is at presently something that we're facing together as a church, we trust in the Lord and realize that, yes, this is an ending, but it's also a beginning. And we look forward to the beginning that God has in store for us. There's one last thing I've got to mention about this that is just amazing to me and makes this the perfect ending to the book of Exodus. This moment, the glory of God filling the tabernacle in the midst of the people of Israel foreshadows, and I think for the very first time in Scripture, foreshadows what God's ultimate purpose is in His relationship between Himself and His people. His eternal purpose, which is to dwell in the midst of His people. For the glory of God to dwell with His people and to do so not only here, but in eternity. It's the first time I think we really see it in the Bible here as God comes to dwell in the midst of His people. In John chapter 1, we read about the coming of Jesus. But from the eternal perspective, John chapter 1, verse 1, In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, the Word was God. We know this passage well, verse 14, The Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory, the glory, glory is of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Speaking about the eternal Christ, the Son of God, coming to earth in a fleshly form. And you probably have heard before that that word dwelt among us literally means tabernacled among us, pitched His tent among us. That God came down in Jesus to dwell in the midst of His people. If you've seen Jesus, you've seen the Father. God comes in Christ and reveals Himself. And when Jesus comes to the earth, He's not only the presence of God and the revelation of God on the earth, but Jesus, of course, becomes the very means of an atoning sacrifice that will allow the fellowship between God and man to go on. For God to be rec- for us to be reconciled to God, our Creator. Jesus Himself will be the sacrifice. Just like the tabernacle is the place where God will come to dwell, and the means through which atonement can come, Jesus is that dwelling of God on earth among us, and then becomes that sacrifice who, is, who purges us from sin, who forgives us of our sins so that we can come into a a relationship with God. And more than that, those who put their trust in the blood of Jesus Christ and what He did for you and I and for the world on the cross, those who have confessed that faith, who have died with Jesus and risen with Him in baptism, are now the dwelling places of the Holy Spirit. In Acts chapter 2, when Peter was preaching on Pentecost and said, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The promise is for you and your children and all who are far off, as many as the Lord our God shall call. And we think, wait, how in the world can this happen? But Paul makes it clear in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 19, when he's talking to individual Christians and he says, Don't you know? 
Your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God. And this is just beyond us. How, how in Christ do we, we ourselves become a dwelling place of the Spirit of the living God? And even more so than that, when we are joined together as, as believers in Jesus Christ, as those who have become part of that spiritual family of His church, we become the temple of the living God. Not just individually in our intimacy with the Father and the presence of the Holy Spirit in our lives, who is present there to convict us through the Word and to help us and to guide us and to comfort us, but together we become the temple of God. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 16, Paul talks to the church as a whole, and he says, Do you not know that you, speaking to the church corporately, you are God's temple, and God's Spirit dwells in you? It just, it's mind-boggling to consider what the Scripture teaches us about this. And Andy read it just a, a few moments ago to us. But again, in Ephesians chapter 2, what Paul says to us in the church about being this temple. He said, so then, Ephesians 2.19, So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built, notice the, the, the metaphor here, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure, being joined together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In Him, in Christ, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. This we see for the first time, the first hints of it, or at the end of Exodus chapter 40, when the glory of the Lord comes and dwells in the midst of His people and God gives a means for their forgiveness so that He can live among them. And through the blood of Christ, God not only lives among us, God lives within us and within the body of Christ in the church. How do we get our minds around that spiritual truth? And and what that means for us, the fellowship that that gives us with the Father, the intimacy that we have with God, that it opens up through prayer, the way that the Holy Spirit intercedes for us in our prayers, the comfort that the presence of the Holy Spirit gives us in our life, the guidance of the Holy Spirit as we listen to the words of God that are inspired by the Holy Spirit in Himself. And as the Holy Spirit works perhaps providentially in the circumstances of our life to open and close doors and to lead us in the way that God would have us to go. How blessed we are. What kind of God is this? What kind of a God is this who makes promises and keeps them for centuries at such great cost to Himself and the blood of His Son and the millennia-long ministry of the Holy Spirit? What kind of God is this who is so gracious and loving, who will invite us into covenant with Him and forgive us of our sins so we can have a covenant with Him and then will live within us that He will be near to us and real to us and living within us. 
to bless us and strengthen us every day of our life. This is a God you can trust. This is a God you can love. This is a God you can just give everything to. Because He has proven Himself. He did it with Israel. He can, and He did. And He will continue to prove Himself to us. And as if that weren't enough, the last chapters in the book, Revelation 21 and 22, when John sees the glorified church, the glorified church, the victorious church, without stain or blemish, One of the images is that of a holy city coming down out of heaven like a bride prepared for her husband. And that holy city, that vision of the church, do you remember what John says? I didn't see a temple in it. I didn't see a temple in it because its temple is the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb who live in the midst of it. That's how the glorified church is pictured. The glory of God dwelling, being the temple in the midst of His people. These amazing spiritual realities that reach to the end of time, at least in my understanding, are first clearly seen at the end of our story when the glory of the Lord fills the tabernacle. And how much more have we received? As amazing as that moment must have been, can you imagine what it was like for Israel on that day? It was right in the middle of the camp so that everyone could see. Imagine what it is like for us to be forgiven of our sins, to receive the Spirit of the living God, and to look forward to one story that... Perhaps the last story, whose sequel we can only imagine. Because it will be lived out in the presence of the Almighty God throughout eternity. That's where the Lord God is taking us. I'm the Lord. I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians, deliver you from slavery, redeem you with an outstretched arm. Take you to be my people, and I will be your God. I will bring you into the land that I swore to give to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. I am the Lord. He can. He will. He did. And He will for you and I. He'll lead us now. He will guide us now. He will lead us eternally into His presence. And this is a God that we can love and trust and serve. And may we continue to do so. And if you don't have that relationship with God, we urgently point you to Jesus Christ, who is the means by which your sins, like all of us, your sins can be forgiven. You can receive the gift of the Holy Spirit so that God can be within you. You can have the blessings of of His promises, and live with that great hope. You can come today just as you are, just like all of us do. We all, we all come broken. We all come as, as sinners and former sinners. and We all come to God looking for grace. We can identify with Israel and their brokenness and fallenness because we too have fallen in our own ways in our lives. But we come to God and we find cleansing through the Lamb of God. 
And we find purpose and we find hope. And if you need that hope today, if you need God within you to lead your life forward, we invite you to come to the God who can and will lead you. Let's stand together as we sing.